Good morning, everybody. I guess I'm the lead-off batter here. Um, and I hope that my slides aren't too disgusting for breakfast talk. But if, I apologize if they are. Some will be a little disgusting. But So drug-induced rashes, you're going to see them, you know, even in the outpatient setting. I see plenty of them in the inpatient setting. So there's something that I've really started to focus on. Um, and I do have no conflicts to disclose here. Um, when you're thinking about cutaneous drug reactions, almost half of all adverse drug reactions are going to have some degree of cutaneous disease. And in hospitalized patients, two or three percent of them are going to have a cutaneous drug reaction during their admission. Women are more common than men to have a reaction. And then there are other predisposing factors, too, to take into account in patients having a drug reaction. So genetic predisposition, this is a burgeoning field in medicine, pharmacogenetics, trying to figure out exactly which, which HLA types predispose you to drug reactions to certain drugs, very personalized medicine. Um, patients with a coexisting viral infection at the time they start a drug can have a higher risk for reaction. And then immunosuppressed patients are also at risk. And one of the things to remember, I'm really focusing on drug-induced rashes, but there are many um, you know, naturally occurring skin diseases that can be drug-induced as well. And so to know about drug reactions, you have to know about all kinds of inflammatory disorders that we see every day, in addition to some neoplastic dermatologic disorders. So I'm going to start out with kind of a little slideshow of some of the random things that can be drug-induced, because the spectrum is extremely wide. So here's our first little case. This is a woman who started terbinafine for her onychomycosis. And she presents complaining of this itchy, annular, scaly rash. It's in a photo distribution. You can see that it spares kind of the area where her you know, bathing suit strap would have been. So this is subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, SCLE. But in her case, it's actually induced by terbinafine. So this is a naturally occurring disease, but it's drug-induced in her case. And it's most commonly induced actually by hydrochlorothiazide or calcium channel blockers or ACE inhibitors, but terbinavine is very frequently reported. Here's another example, an uncommon rash that we see. This is, a, this is a man who presented with crops of these yellow red papules, widely distributed, and it's eruptive xanthomas. We see eruptive xanthomas, not commonly but in the setting of hypertriglyceridemia, especially in poorly controlled diabetics. But this is a drug reaction, actually, or drug-induced, I should say, reaction um, to a lansipine, an antipsychotic. Here's another example. This gentleman presents with acne. Now, you can tell from his hair color and his eyebrows that he should not have new-onset acne at this age. But he's being treated for lung cancer, and he's taking an epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor. So this is an acneiform eruption due to EGFR inhibitors. We see acneiform eruptions also with lithium, steroids, other medications. This can be a very difficult um, condition for patients on EGFR inhibitors and requires treatment so that they can continue their um, therapy. And benzoyl peroxide, antibiotics, maybe even isotretinoin to get these people through the rash is necessary and very helpful. This is another condition. This person's also being treated for cancer, but in this case, it's renal cell carcinoma. And they present with an eruption of numerous crateriform, tender, rapidly enlarging nodules. So you can tell from that description in this picture that this is a keratoacanthoma, but he has many of them all erupting at once. And he's being treated with serafinib for his renal cell carcinoma. And these are serafinib-induced eruptive keratoacanthoma. So this is a neoplastic condition that's actually drug-induced. So the spectrum is very wide. Another example, this is a 16-year-old girl. She's looking forward to prom, unfortunately comes down with mononucleosis and starts to develop this large enlarging nodule. It's ulcerating on her left lower eyelid. Um, and she happens to also have ulcerative colitis, and she's being treated with 6-mercaptopurine for that. So this is, in fact, also a neoplastic condition. This is EBV-related lymphoproliferative disorder. And so this is a combination of a, of a viral infection together with a medication that's causing immunosuppression that produces this neoplastic condition. Another example, here's one that you probably don't want to see at breakfast, but a bullous eruption in a gentleman who's being treated for pneumonia, and he has it elsewhere, but in this picture you can kind of appreciate that maybe the, 
the bulla are forming sort of a semicircle, trying to become annular. And this is linear IgA bullous dermatosis. And you would know that by biopsy and direct immunofluorescence. And that's a normally occurring disease. It can be just an immunobullous disease. But in his case, it's induced by vancomycin, which is the most common reason to have linear IgA bullous dermatosis induced by a medicine. So other immunobullous diseases can also be drug-induced. There's drug-induced pemphigus, drug-induced bullous pemphigoid. So you always have to keep drugs in the back of your mind when you see any rash at all. And that it gets overwhelming to think about, really. Here's a gentleman being treated for rheumatoid arthritis, and he presents with new onset rash on his palms and soles. When you see his soles here, he's got pustules, he's got hyperpigmented macules, some scaling. This is palmoplantar pustulosis, a naturally occurring disease, often in the setting of psoriasis, but in his case, it's induced by his anti-TNF agent. So this is anti-TNF-induced palmoplantar pustulosis. And this is my last one in this sort of little slideshow of um, drug-induced diseases. This is a woman who's very fond of the tanning bed, unfortunately. And she presents complaining of um, skin fragility, blisters, scarring, milia formation on the dorsal hands, quite distinctive for um, porphyria cutanea tarda. But in her case, she's actually taking naproxen. And this is pseudoporphyria, which is a disorder induced by medications in the combination with uh, photo exposure or tanning bed use. So naproxen-induced pseudoporphyria. So that's just an array of uh, diseases that are drug-induced, but they're not really drug rashes per se. And reasons why you always want drug as a cause in the back of your mind anytime you see a patient with an eruption of any kind. Now, most drug reactions are the ones that we know are going to happen. So those are type A reactions, like you put someone on isotretinoin, and you know they're going to have chapped lips. And then you increase their dose, they're going to have chapped lips even more so. So those are predictable. But the real meat of what we're talking about today are the type B reactions. So these are idiosyncratic, unpredictable. Not every patient's going to get them. We don't always know how to predict who's going to get them. It may be due to how they detoxify the drug or other factors that are patient-specific. And type B reactions are can be um, classified according to the Gelcoom's classification, type 1 being immediate anaphylaxis, urticaria. Type 2 and 3 we won't focus on today. Um, but type 4 it includes the majority of the drug-induced rashes. And these are T-cell-mediated delayed type hypersensitivity reactions. So the common reactions we see are most common is morbilliform. Now, some people call this exanthematous because it resembles a viral exanthem. Other people refer to it as maculopapular. This is what they usually say the patient has when they call me from the hospital, maculopapular rash. Other things are fixed drug eruption, urticarial disease, vascular diseases, blistering um, eruptions, papulosquamous eruptions, so like eczematous drug rashes, lichenoid, psoriasiform. I'm not going to talk about phototoxic or photoallergic reactions, but we know those exist. And we already touched a little bit on acneiform drug reaction. So when you see someone with a reaction and you're suspecting, could it be a drug, it's not always that easy to know which drug it is. So you have to think about, okay, the most recent drugs, those are the ones you think about first. They're not always the culprit, but that's an easy way to start. And then if you're lucky, the reaction they're having is sort of closely tied to certain medicines, and that makes it easy too. And then you always have to think, okay, what else could be causing the rash other than a drug? So there's some work to do just in thinking about it. With any detective work, you want to think about the usual suspects. And as I go through this talk, you'll see there are some things that just keep coming up over and over and over again. And that's these, antibiotics, anti-epileptic medicines, NSAIDs, thiazide derivatives, allopurinol. And the new kid on the block is telaprevir, which is used to treat hepatitis C. It's a new medication that causes a lot of drug eruptions. But you know that if you look in the PDR, or God forbid if your patient reads the package insert on his medicines, they're all going to list rash as a possible side effect. So anything goes. So when you make your clinical diagnosis, you're putting it into a category. What sort of eruption are you seeing? You're going to look at the, the drug exposure, and I'll show later why you should make a drug timeline if you can. Want to think about the other possible causes of the rash. 
And once you've done that, you may want to go to the literature and just see, are any of the medicines that the patient's on reported to cause the rash that you're seeing? Um, and and it, once you have diagnosed it and you feel sure you've got a drug eruption and you think you've identified the drug, you may want to confirm it. Well, this would be ideal, but it's rarely possible. So the best confirmation is to de-challenge the patient and then re-challenge them. But most patients are not going to sign up for that. They don't want to be re-challenged with the medication that caused their eruption, for good reason. Patch testing, it's not quite sensitive enough, except in one example, which I'll give today. And then some of the in vitro tests, again, promising, but not really up there yet in terms of something we can rely on. Um, you want to advise the patient and their family members about what to avoid. And if we could all be better about reporting it to an agency or manufacturer or getting a registrar type setup like they have in other countries where we're registering these rashes, it would be great. We're not there yet. So let's start with fixed drug eruption. I think it's one of the simplest ones to diagnose and kind of the most fun. Um, in this eruption, after the first exposure to the drug, it takes a week or two for the patient to show their skin lesions. But upon re-exposure, it can be immediate almost. Within 24 hours, they'll get the same lesion in the same site, and maybe new sites too with subsequent exposures. They favor the lips, hips, and genitalia. So here's some examples. You've got oval or round, deeply erythematous, or even hyperpigmented plaques or patches. They can have some central bulla or central erosion, um, but these are characteristic. They usually fade to leave hyperpigmentation. So usually you can see where they were. Often the patient doesn't come in when it's acute. Unfortunately, you see just the remnant of it. You have to kind of rebuild the history to figure it out. If you want to take a biopsy, that can be helpful. There are some specific findings. The problem is if the differential you provide is erythema multiforme, then the, the biopsy can't be specific because it shows uh, dyskeratosis and the pathologist is going to say EM versus fixed drug and you're back where you started from. So it's a little helpful, but you have to be careful. Causes, tetracycline, sulfonamides, NSAIDs, barbiturates, uh, carbamazepine. Um, and the nice thing about fixed drug eruption is you don't have to have much of a differential. Pretty much all of them are due to some drug if you can just identify which one. So I have some questions in here. Obviously, you can't answer them, but they're just for thought-provoking. Answer it in your head. Which medication is the most commonly reported cause of non-pigmenting fixed drug eruption? So these patients maybe come in, they try to describe what happened, but you can't see any shadow on the skin. There's no hyperpigmentation. So tetracycline, ibuprofen, carbamazepine, pseudoephedrine, or dapsone. And it's pseudoephedrine. So in these patients taking pseudoephedrine, you may have to... Um, have them come in the day of their rash, if you can, to, to get the diagnosis. But that's a non-pigmenting fixed drug eruption cause. Moving on to urticaria, we aren't commonly consulted for urticaria as a drug rash because it's obvious. It starts so quickly after the drug administration. It's minutes to hours, so it's pretty clear. And we know the wheel and flare response here. Edematous, erythematous, central pallor, individual lesions last less than 24 hours very pruritic. Um, patients can also, though, have angioedema, which is edema of the deep dermal or subcutaneous tissues. This can be in the larynx or oropharynx, so that can be dangerous. Um, and then, of course, anaphylaxis, which they never call dermatology for, thankfully, and that's hypotension and tachycardia. So these are, these are things often more hospital-based that we don't see. But this is an example of a patient who's having not only urticaria, but angioedema. So he's got that deep dermal edema of his lip. And he's at risk for, you know, uh, closing of the airway. So acute urticaria, it can be either IgA-mediated or just due to mast cell degranulation that's not mediated by IgE. Many causes listed here, but it includes medications. And the non-IgE-mediated also includes some medications. Um, NSAIDs can cause it via several um, mechanisms, so acute urticaria. And part of the reason I include that is because, oh, treatments by antihistamines, basically. And drugs cause it about 10% of the time. Most commonly, you never know what causes urticaria. It's just hard to figure out. Now, this is a, a condition that's urticarial. And it's one of the most common reasons why I get called to see patients in the pediatric hospital. I'm usually called to rule out Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And I go and I see this rash. It's urticarial, but the lesions last more than 24 hours. 
They can be itchy, but the patient's not feeling well. They have a low-grade fever. They're complaining of joint pains. Um, so this is serum sickness-like reaction, not serum sickness reaction, but serum sickness-like reaction. And the patient, of course, I said, has those fever and arthralgia, but in serum sickness, they'd have many more other findings that would be more serious, and those aren't present in this reaction. Um, the latency between the drug exposure and the onset of the rash can be one to three weeks. So we're talking about a little bit more of a longer latency than the other two we've talked about so far. Cefaclor is sort of the testable cause for this. It's the answer on the test, but it's not always the one we see. I don't see a lot of cefaclor anymore, but other cephalosporins, antibiotics, antiepileptic medicines. And then in a lot of cases, it's just because the patient recently had an infection, either viral or strep. And I've seen plenty of cases that follow vaccination, so serum sickness-like reaction. And then I mentioned before papulosquamous drug reactions. I'm not going to go into those in detail. You always want to think about drug causes for those too. But this is a recent study that showed in your aging patient, now they called aging anyone over 50, but in the aging patient with chronic eczematous dermatitis, the most common cause is calcium channel blockers followed by thiazide diuretics. So that's good just to keep in mind because these can be very difficult patients to treat. And if you have that in the back of your mind and you switch off of the calcium channel blocker, you can do them a lot of good. And the biopsy in this case did not help you decide whether the rash was drug-induced or not, so it was not very helpful in that way. It takes some level of clinical suspicion. Acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis. So the woman you see here on the right, she clearly have a, has other things going on. She's in the ICU. She's being treated with antibiotics for various things. But she turns really red. Her skin becomes edematous. And you can see in the picture that's close up these fine little non-follicular-based pustules. They're sterile. And this is what we call AGEPT, or acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis. Patients usually do have a fever, and the rash can be generalized, but one of the clues is that it either begins with or is accentuated in the intertriginous areas. They don't have mucosal disease, and other than the fever, they don't have systemic involvement, really. Now, there are three drugs that we consider to be SCARs, severe cutaneous adverse reactions. And this is one of them for reasons we're not entirely sure. I'm not sure how it made the list, because even though it looks alarming, it's quite impressive when you see it. When they call you from the hospital, they're always alarmed by it. But it's actually you know, pretty benign. It resolves on its own. It doesn't last very long. There's not a lot of sequelae from it. But it can also, though, overlap with DRESS or TEN. So there's lots of reports of patients who begin with AGEP, but ultimately have a diagnosis of DRESS or TEN. So that may be part of why. Most common causes are antibiotics antifungals and antimalarials, that's good to keep in mind because we prescribe those. It erupts within two days of the drug. So this one has a short latency. That makes it a little easier to figure out the trigger. And then if you just stop the medicine, it's gone in one to two weeks. Uh, you can treat it with steroids if the patient's uncomfortable, but you don't really have to. One difficulty is telling it from pustular psoriasis, uh, the Zumbush pattern, where patients maybe have had steroids and they have a psoriatic diathesis and they erupt in pustules all over. And that's hard to tell, except you can ask them a history of psoriasis. Um, does it go away in a week or two? And do they have a suspect medicine? Biopsy can help if their psoriasis form changes, but if there aren't, then you're left where you were um, to start. So they have leukocytosis, elevated neutrophils, People report hypocalcemia calcemia and renal dysfunction, but I think they're very rare. And so this, this is just treating symptomatically, basically, and trying to get rid of the drug if you can identify one. They do desquamate very superficially. That sort of post-pustular desquamation begins about two weeks after the eruption. And this is the one rare case where patch testing is really actually helpful. So if you weren't exactly sure which antibiotic it was, you can have the antibiotics compounded and placed as a patch test. And if they're positive, they'll actually show little pustules, just like the AGEP in the site. So one of the few good patch test um, confirmation can be done in AGEP. Okay, a new category of disease. So vasculitis can be caused endogenously by many factors, but it can be drug-induced as well. So the patient here has petechia, purpura, palpable purpura, 
It likes the dependent areas, and as is nicely demonstrated here, it loves areas that are under pressure, so his socks have created the purpura. Um, commonly caused by antibiotics, thiazides, NSAIDs, propylthiouracil, phenytoin, um, and the latency is pretty long, one to three weeks after the drug exposure. Um, now, this is one of many types of hypersensitivity vasculitis. You can see the palpable purpura. Don't be alarmed if you see necrosis or bulla too. That can happen. Um, on biopsy, it's usually leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And then you need to be on the lookout for systemic vasculitis as well, because that can be quite dangerous. If it affects GI joints, renal, CNS, or pulmonary, particularly the last three, there is um, risk for mortality. And then, because we know vasculitis can be caused by many other things, you have to sort of rule those out too. Now, this is another one where actually a biopsy can help you. If you're seeing vasculitis and you're like, I don't know, it's LCV, is it drug-induced, the patient has other things going on, your biopsy can actually help you with this. And this was demonstrated at my own uh, institution, UofL, by Dr. Brahmi and Dr. Callan, that in drug-induced uh, small vessel vasculitis, the biopsy will show significant eosinophils. So if you ask your pathologist to note the eosinophils, that can help you suspect a drug induction. Um, you do need to do the workup, though, in case they have systemic disease and to rule out other causes. So as listed here, a UA, basic labs, stool for occult blood, chest X-ray complement, looking for ASO titer in kids, especially serologies. And if it's drug-induced, you stop the medicine, it's gone in two weeks. If they have any signs of systemic disease, you're probably going to need some steroids to help get them through. Okay, our most common drug reaction, morbilliform or exanthematous drug rash. We see it all the time. It's macules and papules coalescing into plaques and starts on the trunk and then extends out peripherally, very pyritic. Um, so you know it when you see it. It looks like a viral exanthem. So morbilliform drug rash, least serious, we'll often treat through. If the patient really needs the medicine that they're on that's causing it and they're not showing any other signs of systemic disease, you can treat it symptomatically and get them through their treatment course. Um, it can be a little violaceous, especially in patients in the hospital on their back or on the buttocks. That's nothing alarming and a one to two week after, uh, latency after the starting point of the medication. Now, this is one, um, if you take the medicine away, it resolves, treatment is symptomatic. Any, any, any medicine can cause it, especially the antibiotics and the usual suspects we've already talked about. And then of course, it could be just a viral exanthem, so you have to think about that too. But this is a caveat, so morboliform drug rash, most common, least serious, but you gotta look for the wolf in sheep's clothing here because it can actually be a severe cutaneous adverse reaction that's yet undiagnosed or that's in evolution. And so don't just write it off, make sure you do a thorough history, review of systems, maybe good physical exam, and I'll talk about specifically what to do and maybe even labs to make sure you're not missing something here. So any rash, not just morbilliform, in the back of your mind, try to rule out the severe ones. Those are the ones you don't wanna miss. So some clues to do that. Does the patient complain of itching or do they say their skin hurts? Hurting skin, painful skin can be TEN in evolution. Other things you wanna ask them, does your face look swollen? Are you having fever? Do your joints hurt? Are you having sore throat, dysuria? And then on your exam, feel for lymph nodes, feel for hepatosplenomegaly, Look in the mouth, look at the eyes. Do they have any lesions there? And then again, can you tell that their face looks swollen? And then your laboratory evaluation can help you too. So we'll do a little case here. This is a nine-year-old boy. He was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for oppositional defiant disorder. And about three weeks later, he was started on the Motrogene. Three weeks later, he's sent to the pediatric hospital because he's having this diffuse rash, it itches, he's feeling badly, he's got fever. And his parents tell us that his face looks totally different. It's really swollen compared to normal. You can see here he's got good erythema. And if we were looking really close, he actually has some pustules and postpustular desquamation around his mouth. And on exam, we see what I just described. In addition to lymphadenopathy, his fever's noted in the chart. And he's tender in the abdomen when you palpate. And then we see his labs. And he's got marked eosinophilia and very elevated liver function tests. This boy has DRESS, drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, DRESS syndrome. 
It uh, ranges in incidence from 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 10,000 drug exposures. It does carry a mortality that may be as high as 10%, so it's a significant reaction. One of the in very unique things about DRESS is it's got a long latency from the time of the medication. Anywhere from two weeks, but more commonly eight weeks or even 12 weeks after the medication has started is when this shows up. So it's hard to sort of look back and suspect the drug. And even once you stop the drug, it doesn't always clear right up. It can persist and recur for a long time. And one of the problems with DRESS over the years is everyone calls it by a different name. We've got the Tower of Babel collapsing here. So some people call it DRESS. This is the preferred term, I think. Others have called it, though, drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome. The GI doctors are call it drug-induced liver injury. Um, Dr. Sontheimer, who first described it, called it drug-induced delayed multi-organ hypersensitivity syndrome. And then some people just put the name in front of it. It's nevirapine-induced hypersensitivity reaction or anticonvulsant-induced. So um, very confusing. Different specialties are calling it by different names. We're all using different names in the chart. <clears throat> Dress is the preferred term. The exanthem is morbilliform. So I showed you this patient under the morbilliform section, but he in fact had dress reaction to nevirapine. Um, they can have vesicles below the perioral pustules that we saw in the little boy. Chelitis can be present, but they're usually not going to have that frank mucosal ulceration and stuff that you see in TEN and Stevens-Johnson syndrome. They can, though, have target lesions and purpura and just be plain old erythrodermic. Um, facial edema, we said, is a nice clue, fever and lymphadenopathy. Okay, on their CBC, lymphopenia or lymphocytosis. And then you want to look for atypical lymphocytes. That's a really good clue if they list those. And eosinophilia, it's in the acronym, but it's not universally present. So even though you think, could it be dressed? You get your CBC and they have normal eosinophil count, it still could be. Dress is only... Um, uh, I'm sorry, eosinophilia is only seen in about 60% of cases of DRESS syndrome, depending on which criteria you use for diagnosis. So don't rule it out based on that. And then thrombocytopenia can be seen too. And the crux of the issue is the internal organ involvement. So liver function test elevation. Liver is the most commonly um, involved organ, followed by kidney and lung. But anything goes. It can affect the heart, the pancreas, the thyroid, anything. So these patients can become very, very ill. With the biopsy and dress, so you send in a biopsy because you want to rule out other things maybe. If they tell you there are no eosinophils in the biopsy, that's meaningless. It could still be dress syndrome. So don't let the pathologist lead you away from a drug reaction just because there are no eosinophils. But one little clue from the biopsy can be atypical lymphocytes, just like in your CBC. If the pathologist notes some atypical appearing lymphocytes, that would help you sort of think about dress syndrome. <clears throat> we don't have a registry in the United States, unfortunately, that's um, complete enough to have a list of the most commons, but DRESS actually has a relatively circumscribed list of causes. I mean, everything else we've talked about, you know, almost anything can cause it, unfortunately. This is only um, maybe dozens instead of hundreds of medicines that can cause it. So anticonvulsants probably top the list, antibiotics allopurinol, the oxycam NSAIDs more commonly than the propionic acid derivatives, sulfasalathine, thalazine, nevirapine, dapsone, and then that new kid on the block, which I told you about, teleprevir, that's causing all kinds of drug reactions. That's the hep C medication that's relatively new. This pie chart is from another country, and there's where allopurinol, phenytoin, and dapsone, but they have a registry. Those may not be our most common causes. So here's a little thought um, question. Which of the following plays a role in the development and or severity of DRESS syndrome? So HSV, autoantibodies, HHV6, hep C, or a recent flu vaccine. And it's actually HHV6. HHV6 is a virus that we all pretty much get when we're kids. It's that exanthem subitum where you get that little rash 24, 48 hours after a high fever. But what happens in DRESS is it reactivates. So it's a latent viral infection. It reactivates about two to three weeks after they start their symptoms. And you can tell this by the IgG titers. Are they going up? Or you can do PCR for DNA. Other viral infections reactivate too. So HHV7, CMV, EBV, these can all reactivate as DRESS syndrome goes on. 
And they showed here with HHV react, HHV6 reactivation, as the titers got very high, the patients had a bad flare of their fever and hepatitis. And also the patients with the reactivation had a much more severe or prolonged course. So this plays some role. It may not be a causative role, but it definitely plays a role in DRESS syndrome in addition to other viral reactivations. And we think maybe these, the circumscribed list of medications that cause it, maybe all have one unique feature in that when you start the medicine, it induces this transient hypogammaglobulinemia. And then during that phase, you start to reactivate your latent viruses. And then your immune response to the viral reactivation creates the syndrome. That's just a theory, but seems to play out somewhat with what we're seeing. New treatment, of course, find out the medication and get rid of it. That's always key. We usually do use steroids, and you have to start with a high dose, and you taper over a very long period, at least four to six weeks, usually longer, because if you come off too quickly, the patient flares and has a recrudescence of their rash and disease. Um, some patients, you just can't get them under control with that. You have to try IVIG, or even in some cases of really prolonged severe dress with myocarditis, we may need something like cyclosporin to control it. Okay, after dress, they have long-term sequelae. So which of the following conditions have been reported to follow DRESS syndrome? Thyroid disease, type 1 diabetes, lupus, sclerosis, or all of the above? Well, actually, of course, it's all of the above, or I wouldn't have it there. But most commonly, it's type 1 diabetes or thyroiditis. And this can be months or years after the syndrome. So you have to kind of follow these patients out with some testing to make sure. And then even further down the road, other autoimmune diseases start to show up. We think that probably the T regulatory cells, which help us maintain our tolerance to self-antigens, become affected by the viral reactivation, and they lose their suppressive capacity. So you see they're calling it drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome in this graphic, but it's DRESS. And during DRESS, all these viruses start to reactivate. And for a while, your T regulatory cells are doing a great job. They're working well, and then they stop. They're suppressed, and your autoimmune diseases start to appear. So they have to be followed long-term for DRESS syndrome. All right, we're moving on to another scar. This is a case of an 18-year-old woman. She just had a baby three months before, and in her postpartum state, she developed some depression with bipolar features. Um, she was started on Lamotrigine about three or four weeks before she comes into the hospital. Here are her lips at the time of admission, some crust on there. She has this rash on her chest, sort of dusky coalescing macules. Um, a week before she came into the hospital, she had a sore throat. She called her doctor, and they said, well, maybe you have an upper respiratory infection. Let's start some ceftonir. Two days into her ceftonir, she said, calls the doctor again. I have a rash on my chest and my arms and legs. And they said, well, stop the ceftonir. You're probably allergic to it. Well, here she is at the time of admission. She has flaccid bulla. She has skin that's basically sloughing off. You can see in that one area there, where it looks like there's been some shear force, lateral pressure, and it's allowed the epidermis just to slide right off of the dermis. That's a Nikolsky sign. She's got skin pain, she's having trouble swallowing, she's got blurred vision, crusty discharge from her eyes, painful urination, and increased vaginal discharge. And then she has LFTs noted on her labs, and what we've already discussed about her skin, you see the flaccid bullet, an area of actual detachment occurring here, those dusky coalescing macules on the chest. This patient, has toxic epidermal necrolysis, probably the worst possible, definitely the worst possible drug reaction, I think, um, TEN. So this was described by Alan Lyell and was for a while called Lyell's disease. He actually reappraised it some years later and said that many of his original cases actually had staph scalded skin syndrome, but still TEN exists. Many people wanna take TEN and Stevens-Johnson's and remove it from the spectrum of erythema multiforme. Take those two and separate them, because they have different causes. But I'm gonna talk about them here together, because the fact is you have to be able to distinguish EM from SJS, and it's not as easy as it seems. So you're seeing the mucosal lesions, coalescing, targetoid, obviously sloughing of the skin in some of these images. EM versus SJS. Okay, erythema multiforme should have classic targets, and I'll show you those pictures. Classic targets on the extremities or face, not the trunk. They can have mucosal sites involved. One, two, three, it doesn't matter. If they have mucosal sites, you call it EM major. And the key to this is these are almost called, always caused by infection, rarely by drugs. 
Herpes simplex virus, mycoplasma, pneumonia are the most common. So you are in kind of a different category in terms of cause. SJS, you're looking for different things. Dusky macules, like the woman had on her chest, flat targets that are atypical, not your classic, I'll show you that. And then involvement of the trunk starts to be seen, and that would be atypical for erythema multiforme. And severe mucosal involvement, of course, too. And this is a case where you have much more likely to be due to drug. It can be due to infection too, but much more likely you're looking at a drug reaction when you get to SJS. So these are typical targets. They have three zones of color, three zones. The center part is deeply violaceous, maybe even dusky, maybe a small bullous area in there. The second zone is a rim of is pallor, a zone of pallor, it's kind of white. And then a rim of erythema, three zones, acral surface or on the extremities or face. That's suggestive of erythema multiforme. These are atypical targets. They have two zones. They're basically bulla surrounded by erythema. They're coalescing. These are on the arms and legs probably in this patient, but if you saw these on the trunk coalescing, you're much more likely in a drug reaction category. You're really looking for SJS here. So they do look different and you can tell them apart. Okay, SJS versus TEN, it's more a matter of degree. What percent detachment do they have? SJS less than 10%, TEN more than 30%, you're seeing more just sloughing of the skin. And then there's the overlap, SJS, TEN, which is 10 to 30% uh, body surface area detached. And you're looking at confluent macules on the trunk. And the reason to separate those out is the mortality. SJS is only about 5% mortality, but TEN is every bit of 25 to 50% mortality, a very um, high risk disease here. And we're all bad about estimating body surface area. We all overestimate it, but try to be accurate. You can use the rule of nines. This is a chart available on the computer. It's different for children from adults. You can use the one handprint equals 1%. And what you want to estimate is how much skin you can detach. Like if you can imagine that a Nikolsky maneuver would remove that skin, you count it as detachable. Luckily, these are rare. SJS, about seven per million persons per year. TEN, about two per million. We probably see three or four cases of TEN a year in Louisville. Immunosuppressed patients at higher risk, as are lupus patients and patients who've undergone radiation and AIDS patients as well. Um, hundreds of medications have been listed as a cause of TEN, hundreds. Most common in this country, we think, we don't have good data, but we think is the sulfonamide antibiotics, so trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Um, Anticonvulsants as well, oxycam, NSAIDs, allopurinol, nevirapine, the telaprevir, um, hep C drug now. But it's on the package insert for all kinds of things. You may have seen that they just added it for acetaminophen. I think that's usually a bystander, but it's on isotretinoin package, possibility of TEN. So it's always a possibility with medications. In Europe, they do have a registry that's quite good. And for them, allopurinol was the most common cause. Okay, the onset here is a week to three weeks. So pretty, pretty long latency, but not as long as stress syndrome. A week to three weeks. And um, anticonvulsants can be even longer. One of the key things to know about SJSTEN, in my mind, is that it starts with a prodrome. So this is what we saw in the woman that we just talked about. Fever, cough, and malaise start a week or two before you see anything on the skin. And then they can have sore throat, mucosal lesions, up to two days before they have anything on their skin, on the keratinized skin. So there is a prodrome and you have to recognize that. And this is why. You really have to do a timeline to determine the drug culprit. And this is so important in TEN because if they take the drug again, they're really at risk for death. Um, so I used an easy one. It can be quite difficult. But this patient was healthy. She's 18. She takes Tylenol every now and then. She started on Lamotrigine there three weeks out from admission. She developed her sore throat and fever, and then two days later started ceftonir, and then a few days later got a rash, and then she's admitted to the hospital. Well, she thinks she's allergic to ceftonir. Her nurses think she's allergic to ceftonir. The chart says she's allergic to ceftonir. Everybody has her listed as that allergy, but that's not what she's allergic to. She has had a reaction to lamotrigine, and if you didn't look back and know about the prodrome, you'd have the wrong culprit identified. So lamotrigine's the cause. So make your timeline if you can, and really think about the prodrome. And I hear people say all the time that they don't, they don't, die, they don't biopsy TEN because they know it when they see it, and I'm glad they do. 
I like to biopsy it because I think there are a lot of mimics. Linear IgA can look like this. There's a type of lupus I'll show you can look like it, perineoplastic pemphigus. Alan Lyell himself mistakenly um, put staph scalded skin in this category, auto, other autoimmune bullous diseases. So you want to think about that. When you do a biopsy, you should see full thickness necrosis, just the whole epidermis just dying. But there's hardly any inflammation to, to say why. Look, there's no cells there. It's just dead. It's coming off of the dermis. This is actually a case that I think you would all agree probably looks like TEN. I mean, you'd treat it like TEN. This patient would be in the burn unit, right? But we did the biopsy, we did the DIF, and he has vancomycin-induced linear IgA. He has a sub-epidermal blister with neutrophils and a DIF that confirmed the diagnosis. So this is a reason to biopsy these patients. This is literally the first patient I saw when I got out of residency. I was called to the burn unit for TEN. Looks like TEN to me. Felt pretty good about that. We started treating her. But I did send off my biopsy and my DIF. And she has actually a very rare kind of TEN like bullous lupus. So she had an atrophic interface dermatitis. So very severe type of lupus. If you manage TEN, you may not. But if you do, you want to know about the SCORE 10 prognostic um, uh, tool. And you just calculate uh, these uh, this factor. Each, you, you count up the prognostic factors they have, one point each. You calculate it every day for the first three to five days of admission, take the highest score, and it does really pretty well at, at predicting their mortality rate. You can see if they have more than five of those, they're up to a 90% chance of mortality. Of course, the best thing you can do is get rid of the medication that caused it. And if it has a short half-life, they're probably going to do okay. If it's a medication with a long half-life, they may have a, a tough road ahead. We put them in the burn unit. If you don't have that, ICU's good. They need fluid replacement, temperature control. Very important to avoid shear forces on the skin. So we try not to have them um, bandaged with anything that's gonna pull. Um, our burn unit uses bandages that only have to be changed every three or seven days, which is good because then you're not traumatizing the skin. I don't start any empiric antibiotics, but we keep a high threshold for starting them if there's any suspicion for infection. Sepsis is the leading cause of death in TEN. And we ask our surgeons not to debreed these patients because I don't think it's helpful at all. And the one time I will start something empirically is if they have a history of genital herpes or cold sores, we'll start antivirals because a reactivation of one of those in the setting of TEN can be just a disaster. And if they survive their TEN, the worst uh, sequela is they often have very severe visual impairment, even blindness and scarring. So ophthalmology should be on board right away. And what they used to do is just get topical antibiotics and they'd take a glass rod and kind of break up all the adhesions, but it wasn't really improving the patient's vision loss. So they then started to place amniotic membrane. This is one of my gross pictures, but it's really helpful. They put the amniotic membrane over the surface of the eye and over the conjunctiva of the eyelid um, and leave it on during the entire acute phase. And these patients have a much lower risk for vision loss with that. And then don't ignore the genital region, especially in women, because if they have the scarring in this region, either in the vulvar area or in the vaginal canal, sets them up for a lifetime of discomfort and difficulty. Uh, you get adhesions and other problems. So we involve um, gynecology. We ask them to delay menstruation if we can so they don't get vaginal adenosis. And then they'll even place a vaginal dilator or mold to prevent adhesions in the vaginal canal, if at all possible. And then long-term sequela, they have really bad sequela in the mouth, dry mouth, and dental abnormalities and stuff, especially if they were children when they had the disease. So a lot of sequelae of the disease. And despite the fact that this is one of the most dangerous drug reactions, there's only been one randomized controlled trial for treatment in TEN. And it was with one of the following, thalidomide, IVIG, prednisone, cyclosporin, or infliximab. All of those are possible treatments. It was thalidomide, the only trial they did. And they had to stop it early because everyone, well, more people in the thalidomide arm were dying than the people who weren't on thalidomide. So it's the only drug we know not to use, and it's the only trial out there that we have. And many people are using IVIG. We use it uh, at UofL. Um, I can't say there's great data for it, but it started with a study in 1998 that suggested that if you use this, it seemed to stop some of the sloughing of the skin and patients recovered more quickly. They think it blocks up the fast, fast ligand binding to stop keratinocyte apoptosis. Um, 
This group in Europe tried to find evidence for why we're using IVIG, and actually the only study they found, or like the best study they found was a case-controlled study of 122 patients. It was pretty large. It wasn't randomized, but it case-controlled, and actually showed a higher risk of mortality, mortality from IVIG, so not very helpful there. Others argue, though, that they just didn't have the right dose. So the dose is three grams per kilogram given over three to five days. And Many people think if you just give this dose, then you will see a higher survival rate. Um, IVIG is not without its side effects. I mean, infusion reactions, um, clotting, anaphylaxis, renal failure, hemolytic anemia, pulmonary edema, septic meningitis, and the cost is high. I mean, twenty-five dollars or $30,000 just for the medication, not to mix it, not to administer it. It's a very costly therapy. It's still what we're using. In Europe, they're using much more cyclosporin, which is a decent thing too. It doesn't have any, any trials either, because in the trials they've done, they look great, but they're not including anybody with renal dysfunction. They're not including anybody who's immunosuppressed. They're not including anyone with high blood pressure. So you've got this real patient selection issue. These patients may do better anyway. So we can't really say. And then steroids, very controversial. If you're gonna use them in SJS or TEN, you want it to be for 48 hours or less, and in people with less than 20% body surface area because you increase their risk for sepsis beyond that. So many people don't do that at all. Thalidomide's the one we know not to use. You can try other things. Um, when you have a patient who had an allergy to phenytoin, a reaction, especially a severe reaction to phenytoin, you have to be able to then tell them what they can take. So can they take carbamazepine, levetiracetam, lamotrigine, phenobarbital, or arx, oxcarbazepine? <laughs> Hard to say. Actually, it's levetiracetam. And the reason is that we know that phenytoin, carbamazepine, and phenobarbital cross-react. We kind of memorized it as PCP, phenytoin, phenobarbital, carbamazepine. And then there have been studies that show that lamotrigine cross-reacts with those three, too. So if you're allergic to one of them, you avoid all the other three, too. That's traditionally our thinking. We don't have great evidence for it, but it's with TEN, you want to be safe and not sorry. So you try something outside of that group of drugs. So we've talked about drug reactions. Many, many factors go into causing the drug reactions, um, some of which we can control, many we can't. Uh, the burgeoning field right now is the pharmacogenetics, and almost every week there's a new article showing us some HLA association with a certain medicine in a certain uh, group of people. This is just short list. It could be on and on. But a trend toward personalized medicine, which may decrease the rate of these scars, which would be great. Um, if you want to write up a study or a case report and you really want to be sure that the drug you chose was the right one, there are criteria for that. They're almost always useful after the fact. You can't really calculate them while you're seeing the patient. You need some follow-up. But the Naranjo criteria are available to do that. And in conclusion, we've talked that many, many drugs cause cutaneous eruptions. The pattern can look just like a naturally occurring disease, so you have to keep drug-induced in the back of your mind all the time, always be thinking about it. Could it be a drug reaction? And then um, think about other causes as well. And with that, I'll conclude. These are my little three Louisville fans at home. Thank you all so much for your attention. Hi. Hi. I was um, curious, where do you pick your biopsy point when you're biopsying one of those? Um, for SJS or TEN, yeah, right. for example. You'd like to not be in an area of totally denuded skin. So at the edge of a blister, if there is still such a thing, or where it looks like the skin's maybe dusky but still intact, that's a good place. Yeah, you don't, if you're in an area denuded, you don't get the, you really want to see the epidermis. You right. don't want it to be separated. Do you, do you typically do more than one biopsy to get a couple pictures or? It, it would be wonderful. I'm always doing two biopsies because I do one for DIF too. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll do one or two. But yeah, it'd be great if you could. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More is always better. <laughs> Go ahead. The um, vancomycin induced linear IgA, is that mm -hmm. red man syndrome? It's different actually. It's, and red man syndrome we do see, but they don't typically have blistering. So it's a separate. Um, reaction induced by vancomycin. So more blistering, sloughing of the skin um, than you would see in red man syndrome. Does dialysis ever play a role in this to remove the medication? Um, you know, some people will do plasmapheresis, uh, and I guess that's a similar idea. Um, 
It's not a bad thought. I've actually never read about that to try to just, you know, remove the medication from the system more rapidly. I've not seen that as a treatment option. I'm going to go ahead and yell. Hi. Um, what is, have you appreciated any reactions with Synthroid? Um, that one's probably a rare cause of cutaneous reaction, and right this second I can't think of any that I've seen with Synthroid. Have you seen one that yes. you were thinking about? What was it? Um, well, the endocrinologist said that it's a common thing he sees with Synthroid, mm -hmm. that it's spontaneously resolving and mm -hmm. lasting about four weeks to five. It's like intensely pruritic, and it spontaneously resolves without ceasing the drug. I have not encountered that, but I okay. may look it up now that you mentioned it, because I've not, I've not heard that. So you saw a patient with that, and it, and it did resolve without discontinuing the drug? Right. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I kind of I have a similar question, just yeah. about any particular medicines I want to ask you about that you've seen severe reactions to. How about inhalers? Um, very, no. no nothing with inhalers? No. How about people having severe reactions to prednisone? Um, well, the acneiform eruption, um, and then more like uh, the, the common side effects of prednisone. Did you have one in mind that was different? I just didn't know if in your career you'd ever seen TEN or SGS2 to that. I mean, no, it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, but there's... there's uh, right. You know. No, I think it can worsen the, the disease in terms of sepsis. I think that's an example, though, if it's ever reported, you have to look very carefully. A lot of times the reported medication is the innocent bystander. And so they may be blaming pregnant, but I have not seen it to pregnancy. And, and lastly, any SJS or TEN with uh, crystal methamphetamines, cocaine, or any street drugs? Uh, we have seen street drugs. I don't know crystal meth in particular, but we have seen it. Um, I had a patient with a heroin. It appeared to be a heroin-induced um, dress syndrome, actually. But Go ahead. I was looking for a resource, because I use Apocrates mostly because it's easy mm -hmm. in the office, but it always just says rash. Oh, I know. Underneath oh, it says rash. Names. So you is know, there a good, re like a kind of a quick resource? There's not recommend? really a good one. I mean, there are probably some books on drug rashes, but it's hard to keep them up to date. So honestly, I think the best resource is PubMed or um, Ovid Medline, whichever your search engine is. And you put in the type of rash you're seeing, whether it appears to be SGS, TEN, or papulous squamous, or, and then the drugs that you think are suspect and see if you pull up any reports. Okay. That's really, I think, the best resource the PDR, but it doesn't stay up to date enough, probably. There's a reference called the Drug Eruption Manual. Yeah, I, I've seen it, and it, it can be helpful. I, I like to do a, a literature review. But. Any other questions? Thank you all so much. Oh, did you have one? Go ahead. Um, ASO titer versus DNA SP. Um, I'll, I'll often uh, leave it to the pediatricians to help me with that, but I think you could use either. I think they're, they are using more DNA speed now, probably, than the ASO titer. Yeah. Any others? All right. Thank you all. Thanks.